Next, on the Agony Column podcast. Cowie Hart Hemming's new novel, The Descendants, is set in Hawaii. It was too hot to rebel. You couldn't wear black. You couldn't don the garb. The Edenic setting doesn't make life any easier for those who live there. The islands or living in paradise makes it difficult to mope. Trouble in Paradise, coming on the Agony Column podcast. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Cowie Hart Hemming's first book was the collection of short stories titled House of Thieves. Her first novel is The Descendants. Thank you for joining me, Cowie. Thanks for having me. Cowie, one of the interesting aspects of this book is the contrast between the paradise backdrop and the emotional minefield that the characters are going through. Could you give us an idea of what ha- what is transpiring as the novel opens when our protagonist, Matt King, is telling paradise to go do something to itself? <laughs> yeah. Well, he also says that you know, the islands or living in paradise makes it difficult to mope. And it just reminds me of being in high school and trying to rebel. And it was too hot to rebel. You couldn't wear black. You couldn't don the garb that's necessary. Um, but I, I, I'm just interested in sort of Edenic settings in which it's just, it, there's a contrast and yet, it, it's not forced, it's just where the people come from, and tragedy, and loss, and depression are going to happen anywhere, even in paradise. As the novel opens, Matt King is with his wife, who's in a coma, mm-hmm. and of course, uh, my immediate response, alas, is to think of the Smiths' song, Girlfriend in a Coma. I love it. It's very serious. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and this brings out, your novel works around what I call the truth hurts humor. And Mm -hmm. and you make a, it's a series of painful but often funny observations that Matt himself makes. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how you came to encapsulate so many very interesting observations and cast them in this humorous light. It, it, they're all painful, too. It, it, it's not happy stuff that's happening here. No. Yeah, definitely a wife in a coma is not happy stuff. Um, and yet, when you create a character, and you, start, you need to think about how he was, he or she was, before, before the plot in before um, she or he is challenged. And so you need to know how they are before in order to know how you're going to transform them. And part of the things that I think are going to stay are your sensibility. And he had a comic sensibility, and that's not going to change um, with tragedy and his perception of life and his ways of dealing with life are going to One thing that's interesting about this is we observe that that men don't really grow up, in a sense. They never grow up, and yet they are simultaneously 
crotchety old men at the same time. Could you talk about how you encountered that and how you work that through the the novel itself? I think, you know, men never grow up and women don't necessarily grow up either. Um, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I think there's simultaneously a middle-aged man and a 16-year-old boy somewhere in my body because... <laughs> I seem to share the same sense of humor and um, same delight in immature activity as they do. And I think men are able to express it more. Um, You know, I'm a mother. I can't do that. Um, But for some reason, dads can, as my husband does, come home from his work at the law office and then go to the skate park. And I really have always liked that quality in men and boys, and maybe that's why I had so many guy friends as a as a child, um, because it, it's just something I've I appreciate. This novel involves quite a bit about parenting. Matt finds himself suddenly; he's been an attorney, and mm-hmm. in the the before time. He was never involved that much in bringing up his daughters. That was no. the, the bailiwick of his wife. Now he finds he's in Parenting 101. Mm-hmm. And, and you do quite a bit of talking about this, you know, when somebody finds themselves immersed in this, all of a sudden, I'm I'm a parent. Yeah. I, 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 I have the same experiences. Although I started this, um, well, this was based on one of the short stories that was in House of Thieves, and I had written that. Um, before I had a child, um, you know, I was 26. And, but when I did have a baby at 28, I was completely immersed into a new world where my peers were 7, 10 years older than me. And it wasn't just a new world in terms of kids, but also my new peers. And so I sort of had that feeling that Matt King does of just being overwhelmed and inundated with this, these new rules to life um, and raising children in this day and age when you have to think about um, child-proofing experts and whole grains and all these things. <laughs> you know, I was becoming familiar with, he was becoming, or I made him familiar with too. One thing I find that you, you a point you make that's really an interesting one is that as you become a parent, the main thing you realize is that you're surrounded by experts who know far more than you could ever hope to know. Mm-hmm. But so you're more you spend most of your time as a parent aware of your own ignorance of how but to be a parent. Mm-hmm. And yet you sort of delight in your own ignorance because it's like these experts are know so much about things. They don't need to know, and you don't need to know. And in a way, they're creating problems that wouldn't have even existed in the first place. Matt finds himself in in a place where we see um, a lot of images of children behaving like adults and adults behaving like children. I'm thinking in particular now of Scotty, who is, though she's very young, is Mm -hmm. privy to all sorts of very frank and somewhat disturbing uh, sexual talk and and imagery. Yeah. Um, And I think that's usually always described as being precocious, but I never have 
I never saw her as being precocious. She was weird and odd and obviously disturbed, though she doesn't know she's disturbed by the events currently taking place. She's just acting and reacting to what's around her. Um, and I think her mother had always placed her in both daughters in adult situations and in adult-like surroundings, and they had always been at their parents' parties, and this was, and they just have developed a new way of talking, as I feel that all young children do. I mean, the way 10-year-olds dress, the way we used to dress when we were 10 years old, they're very adult-like. They want things that adults have. Um, they have, you know, fake designer bags and just things that um, children aren't even supposed to want. It's really interesting that now the way that parenting has changed in the time that, that many of us have grown up. We had one kind of experience of, of being parented in childhood, and, and the experience now is really, really different. And that's, I think, one of the more interesting aspects of this novel is the way you draw that out. Yeah, and yeah, and I couldn't help but draw it out just because I'm, um, I was just so immersed into being a new parent, and and I just love, I love teenagers. I love, um, I love pop culture. I love uh, the effect pop culture has on teenagers. I just like watching them speak and behave, and it, it's just fascinating to me because it says not so much, not so many things about them, but about us about adults and about um, our society and our media. And it, it's very telling. The way, Teenagers are telling, very telling about ourselves. <laughs> teenagers are, in, in your book, in a sense, teenagers are almost satires of adults. <laughs> yeah, that, I, I, I haven't thought about it that way, and I like that. Uh, the backdrop of Hawaii is really interesting in this novel, not just because it's such a, a beautiful paradise and, and there's this deep history of Hawaii. And, and ho history matters more in Hawaii, I think, than it does in the mainland, doesn't it? Um, it seems to, and it seems there's more um, conflict here surrounding or because of events that happened so long ago, whereas I don't think that happens as much on the mainland. There's uh, you know, and one of these conflicts was this land uh, trust that was that I put into my book. Um, Could you talk about that? That's a really interesting uh, uh, aspect of this novel, and it really, you know, it haunts the whole novel. It's yeah. the ghost that haunts the novel. Yeah. Um, well, I based it on, you know, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I, I was, just let me say, I was just speaking to, you know, a producer who says whenever he's, he's adapting a book into film, he only reads the book once and just to see what sticks. And then he'll go back later. But I feel the same way when I research things. I research and then I just see what sticks and I just move on and on and I sort of collect things as I go. And so here I sort of focused on the Bishop Estate and Damon Estate and my own family's um, Wilcox uh, Grove Farm. And Mainly, mainly it came down to the Bishop Estate was interesting, or the um, Damon Estate, in which um, 
as when the last heir dies, 20 beneficiaries inherit. In this case, it was up to about $900 million. Um, and that's, that's what I put in my book, except in my book they would also have to sell off their land, and, and this would become one of the challenges for the protagonist in who to choose. And the reason I even incorporated this land deal, um, well, I wanted to talk about history and real estate, and yet I wanted it to be integral to the plot, not just something to talk about. And so that's why I made it one of the uh, protagonist challenges. It's interesting how um, intimately families become entwined with real estate. I, I know that in my wife's family, there's there's real estate, and there's a lot of the uh, the same kind of inheritance um, mm-hmm. uh, paths where there's uh, somebody in, inherits a quarter, and then that person has eight uh-huh. children or eight grandchildren, and yeah. it all gets divvied up in this mm-hmm. way. And, and in that way, um, real estate really does seep into the the blood of a family line. Yes, and especially, I mean. This, these wills were created, you know, in 1824 or 1924, and um, it's just interesting imagining that person sitting down to create their will and is titled The Descendants, and it's about this this kind of last generation. And one of the really interesting observations you make is that when white people arrived in Hawaii, the first thing that you found people lounging on the beach and, and just living a, a beautiful life of perfection, mm-hmm. they told them to get up, get to work, get a life, <laughs> be straight, be good. And four generations later or, or so, the... the people who finally inherit all this, the work of the previous generations, have reverted by virtue of the wealth they've inherited to live the same kind of lackadaisical, slackadaisical <laughs> life <laughs> that they were originally lifted up from by those who came to save them. It's true. Um, yeah, and Hawaii is like that. You know, I've been looking at preschools for my daughter, and a lot of them say they're play-based. Well, I think this whole island is play-based. Um, people center are centered around play. They work so they can canoe surf or kayak or um, play volleyball. And it's just interesting to me that that's the motivating factor for about just about anyone who lives here. Um, but it it is funny that here come the missionaries to tell them you know to stop hula dancing. And decades later, their descendants are, well, in bikinis, hula dancing. (laughs) It's funny to me. There are lots of examples of of talk of of parenting in this book. Mm -hmm. One of the things I really liked was the the way you handled the drug talk. Mm -hmm. And and this is, uh, again... 
as parents, we find ourselves faced with uh, with a, a, a whole new world of, of things to have to deal with, and th- most of which we don't know about. And there are bevies of experts waiting to tell us what we don't know. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, I think that drug talk was realistic. Um, and I liked, I, I wanted her response, uh, the daughter's response, to be realistic, too. And... Everyone's going to rehab these days. But kids do drugs, and they have fun, and then they don't do drugs, and they're okay. And not everyone needs to go to rehab, and I don't even think um, people who go, or at least, you know, Lindsay Lohan and all those people who are going to rehab, they're not doing it to fully recuperate. It's just to please the media. And I like, I wanted to create a realistic dialogue between father and daughter, which would be not so uplifting and not so well-spoken, and it's sort of like a sex talk. You want to get it over with as soon as possible. Are you okay? Yeah. Are you doing drugs? No. Oh, okay. Let's move on. <laughs> Matt King is a, is a really interesting character. He He's full of doubt, self-doubt. He's constantly doubting himself. And, and at one point, he, he just says, I, I don't know how to live correctly. And I think that this gets to the heart of a way a lot of people feel these days. Mm-hmm. We feel counterfeit, even though we're fully, you know, blooded adults with jobs and kids and houses and paying the bills and all this mm-hmm. stuff. We still feel like, oh, my God, I don't, I don't belong here. Yeah, yeah. I think everyone feels that way. and um, I feel like a fraud as a writer. My husband just told me yesterday he feels like a fraud at his new job as an attorney. Um, people are always going to carry their younger selves with them, and that younger self is going to constantly tap them on the shoulder saying, you know, who are you? Who do you think you are? Um, and yet I think it's a good feeling to be feel sort of out of your element sometimes. But um, as far as Matt King goes, when he says, I don't know how to live correctly, um, that for me was a moment, like a real moment for him, um, that he was just sincerely overwhelmed by life. And and by grief. And this Mm -hmm. book is quite a bit about grief. And it's... In this book, grief takes a really interesting form because Matt's wife isn't dead. Mm -hmm. She's in a coma. Mm -hmm. But for all intents and purposes, she might as well be dead. Mm -hmm. And she might as, she might soon, very soon be dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I wonder if you'd talk about this kind of um, grief and suspension that that he he and everybody in his family are forced to go through by this. Yeah, grief because they're waiting for the end and and yet this grief is tinged by this hint just this slight 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 hint of um not happiness but change because it's only with the mother's absence or silence that he could really meet his daughters get to know his daughters and 
the power this mother had over the daughter silenced them as well. And only now are they sort of able to ask themselves and get to know their father. And so grief in this book um, is accompanied by a huge amount of guilt. And relief. And relief. And guilt from that relief. Yes. <laughs> this novel is... Um there's a lot of underground to this novel, I guess is the way, is the way I, I'd put it, mm-hmm. in that we have a character who's in a coma, and, and yet you've created this character, and she is a character, someone we, we get to know. Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder if you talk about the process of creating the the um, prequel, to a sense, of this novel. I mean, there, this novel could easily be the sequel to the novel to the novel that preceded it, that described all the events that led up to Matt yeah. sitting in his room. Yeah, yeah. Hey, maybe I should write that. Um, I, I'd read it. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I want to write a prequel, a sequel. Um, no, Joni, who's the mother, um, I wanted to start, I definitely wanted to start it where it starts um, because I, I needed her couldn't be there for me to really see Matt King clearly. And and it's only when I finished the novel, I think, that I developed her a little more. Because she really wasn't there on the page. And so we didn't know what we were missing. Um, we didn't see the effect this woman had on her daughters and her husband. And it was a hard thing to do. It's, it's hard, it was hard for me to show her effect when she couldn't speak. And I'm all right. I don't really like to go into fully full flashbacks. I don't like a lot of flashbacks. And so (laughs) that's a pretty big challenge. How do I make this character real? Um, And I just had, I guess I just had to do it through Matt King's perception and the way he would talk about her with his daughters, the way his daughters would talk about their mother the way they would react to her in the room and look at her and the way they would just speak about the hypothetical death. And Sid helped a little, who's, who's, one, who's um, the elder do- eldest daughter's sort of boyfriend. And He's a was, wonderful character. I really enjoyed Sid. He really uh, livens up the books and, and the scenes he's in. And, and I think it, what's interesting is he starts out seeming kind of lightweight, uh-huh. but in, in the end, he he acquires the same you know gravity as the rest of the characters. Yeah, um, yeah, and I mean, and I brought him in. in this, uh, you know, I brought him in after I had written this novel. Or no, no, I brought him in like about halfway. He didn't exist until I was halfway through, and then I. That, you know, I need somebody else to help me not only show this mother, but show this entire family just from an outside perspective and just to provide some comedic relief. And, um, you know, I just love extra characters that aren't integral to the story. And he started out light, and I didn't ever intend him to have that much weight or to have his own story. Um but then I just found him. I found him a little story, and knew that I needed it, or else he would just be a toss away. 
character. One of the aspects of this novel, I think, that it makes something really clear that's not obvious to us as, as we live. And this is what I call serial and parallel lives, mm-hmm. in that we experience life in, on the interior in parallel. We can think about a bunch of different things. Mm-hmm. We can be have a, a number of you know, conflicting emotions. We can think about work and we can think about love all at once. Yeah. Yet when we're in our lives day to day, you can only do say or say one thing at a time. Yeah. And you make this really, it makes some really interesting points with this in the novel. You mean? <laughs> you mean an example? No. Um, well, well, there's there's lots of points where Matt is feeling guilty, mm-hmm. feeling feeling angry. He he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't feel he feels confident, and yet all he can do is think, "I'm going to go visit the next person. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. go on this quest." Yes. Yeah. Um, that, okay, I get it, and. He is a character, and I think men are a character who don't, they don't wallow. Um, when I'm sad, I, I'll wallow in my bedroom or something. And when men are sad, they'll go play basketball and or something. And Matt King was definitely a character who wasn't going to think. This wasn't going to be a reflective novel. It had to be one of action. He needed to do something, whether it was the right move or not, and I think this mission, which was finding his dying wife's lover, was one of the ways he dealt with grief. And his other men- mission was to get control of his two daughters. He needed, he needed while he was thinking about all of these things and feeling all these feelings, he also needed some action. And you actually say this specifically. I- with respect to grief, at one point Matt observes that he, he's at the uh, um, the kind of little party he's giving where he's going to tell everybody that he's uh-huh. going to have to pull the plug. And, and he observes that people like to have a specific chore in sure, times uh-huh. of grief. Yeah. Um, yeah, they don't want to just... They, I mean, the biggest thing, the worst thing in the world is calling someone up and saying, I'm sorry about your loss the best thing in the world would be if the other person called and said, hey, can you get me this? And it's something you can actually do. It's something that's tangible. um, When you're dealing with with grief, nothing helps. And yet, I think that's why so many people bring food to the bereaved, because it's something you can hold, something they can hold. It's something that can be This novel has a, a, a really interesting and often painfully accurate portrait of, of marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one portion where the character talks about, you know, I vow not to kiss you when you're trying to read. I will tolerate you in sickness and ignore you in health. I mm-hmm. promise to let you watch that stupid news show about celebrities since you're so disenchanted with your own life. Uh, and, of course, in this in this novel, marriage is beset by infidelity. And I wonder if you could talk about the consequences and responses to marriage that lead to infidelity and back to marriage again. You know, 
I, I don't know. I don't have too much experience in that terrain. I think I was going, I based a lot of their marriage on um, some couple, some people I know here in Hawaii. And, um, and also, you know, my, my parents were divorced and um, my, my mom remarried, but my stepdad eventually had an affair. And I don't know what leads what leads a person to that um in this case it was it was boredom and i think the mother just felt she could do it and that she'd be immediately absolved i think she was the kind of person who trusted the fact that her family would always be there for her, not because they necessarily loved her, but because she was the star of the show. Um, and so in this case, I guess what you know led her to another man's arms was just for the sense of adventure, just as she liked to race speedboats and motorcycles. It was just something to do. And this gets back to, to Joni as a character mm-hmm. and as a mother because... One of the things that Matt has to deal with as he becomes, in a sense, a new father, because he's been out just breadwinning all this time and, and not mm-hmm. been much of a father, is he has to live with the with the ineptitude of his wife as a mother. Yeah, yeah. And even that, he's just becoming, I mean, he's known that. And yet, only now has he realized the consequence of that. Before, um, it was almost just quirky. Oh, your mother does this, and um, she's flirtatious and rebellious. But only now is he seeing this manifest into um, his daughter's attitudes and behavior, and it's frightening. One of the things that you do very well in this book is to create uh, children characters, uh, there's Scotty, who's 10, and there's Alex, who's 18, mm-hmm. who have all the complexity and depth of the adult characters. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you talk about um, how you um, constructed these characters. Uh, do you do, uh, how much of this book is written outside of the book? Is there, is it, do you do that? No, no. I just write as I go, just dive in, and I write really quickly <laughs> and see where it takes me. Um, I suppose, I mean, for me, the biggest, the best way to know a character is to have them do something, is to have them make a choice or talk to other people or um, take some sort of action. I, I, I rarely get to know my characters through their internal reflections. And so I think when we first meet Alex, she's drunk on a soccer field at her private boarding school um, playing golf. And um, I feel like the way we get to know Scotty is by the way she talks, um, the way she her, you know, her, speaks to her father, speaks to other kids. Um, and so I guess the way I develop characters is that way. And I don't really think about it too much off off the page. I do if I'm, you know, 
I get a lot of my, I think about my characters a lot when I go running. <laughs> That's when I sort of just think about them as people, not how I'm going to develop them, but just, I just like to think about them and what they will do. That's the only thing that really helps me write characters is what will they do or what would happen if this happened to them. And I am constantly sort of thinking of little scenarios. In this book is very funny. There's lots of really great painful observation and one-liners in here. Mm-hmm. There's almost too many. There's something to make you laugh out loud on, on practically every page. And yet the same things that make you laugh out loud also kind of make you cringe. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I I love writing. I think that just comes out. Um, I'm full of one-liners, usually in conversation. I'm pretty reticent otherwise, and I'll just shoot out a few one-liners, and I suppose that has translated into, or not, I don't suppose, I know that has translated into this book. Um, and I think it, it, it's, Matt, it's Matt King's perception, and the book is going to take on his tone. All the characters actually take on a humorous. They all, they're all funny, and I think that's because Matt is a father who will allow that dialogue, that it will allow that exchange. So he sets the tone for the whole characters and the way they talk. One of the things I, that I noticed in this book, too, is that we as readers and you as an author like everybody. I mean, there's nobody in this book who's un- unlikable. <laughs> and I'm wondering how you got around to writing a book that doesn't really have an antagonist. It's just a collection of... Uh, uh, squabbling protagonists. <laughs> I think there's actually, you know, unlikable traits in each of the characters. And that's what makes them likable and that's what makes them bearable in that we as people aren't entirely likable either. And it wouldn't be real if if they were all perfect and behave perfectly. And I've actually got my actually my mom was in the office, her office, she's a realtor the other day, and one of the other realtors just said, no, I love this novel, but, oh, that Matt King, I had no sympathy for him. And then other realtors all started talking. They're like, well, I love Matt King. And there was a big discussion in her office, and a few people just did not like Matt. Um, They didn't feel sorry for him, um, which I don't understand personally. But I think the discussion is great. I, I, I love a debate, and I love when it's not so clear-cut. Um, this person is good, and I like that the dying person wasn't good. That was that was one thing that, that I also liked, that there was none of this, you know, pinging to the dying and, and mm-hmm. him for the dying. That Joni, if anybody's unlikable in the book, it's mm-hmm. Joni, though you still like her because Matt loves her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you like her because, in a way, you have to, because she's going to die. But she, she, well, yeah, that's pretty much <laughs> her only good point, isn't it? I guess in retrospect, that's true. Yeah. Well, I mean, Matt King mentions that, too. He's just like, I love this about her, I love this about her. But wait, do I only love this because I know she isn't going to be here tomorrow? Would I love this if she were going to be here? And, and he also comes to the painful realization that his family will 
actually be better off without her. And I yeah. thought that was really wonderful. Yeah, yeah, that was hard to write. <laughs> it's hard to say. Uh, one thing, I, you do a lot of really great subtle characterizations of Matt. Mm-hmm. And there's one point where somebody, he calls up somebody, I think, and they say hi. And mm-hmm. he immediately thinks badly of them because he know, he thinks you should always say hello. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, that's actually something my grandfather would say. Never say hi. <laughs> um, but little things, I mean, I base that on, you know, what I read. And what I respond to most in novels are those subtle characterizations, not the big monologues or, or internal dialogues. It's the little things snuck in every sentence or two um, that truly show and reveal a person. It's always little, the little things. As one of the things about the the children in this book, and, and I think it's a really interesting observation, something that that I personally feel is true, and I don't think it's talked about much, is the effect that the our peers, your children's peers, have on you on them, mm-hmm. and it seems. To me, and I think that's part of the perception in this book, that today children's peers have more influence on them than they did when I I was growing up, mm-hmm. and a worse influence. And in, in that how um, if your ch- child hangs around with the wrong people, I mean, it's really kind of bad for them. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yet, I don't know if I feel that it was any different when I was younger. Um Sometimes, I mean, even when I was young, I had pretty good peers. I would seek the bad ones out. I mean, I would make a concerted effort at times <laughs> to find the bad kids or just to find people who were different, who would take me in a different world. Because um, I think that people are influenced by bad peers or because they want new experience. So they're not necessarily, um, you know, pressured. It's a true desire because they want a new experience. I'm also really interested in the, the way this book is plotted because it, it seems very organic. I, I, and I, I'm guessing it was written that way. But there also seems that the plotting is very clever in the way we intercut between the um, problem with the descendants and this land deal Mm -hmm. and the way Matt King's personal life is kind of just going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. And the way that handbasket and that deal kind of crash into one another. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and I wanted—I didn't want him—I mean, it's enough of a challenge— that for a man to have a dying wife and to go out and find her lover. Um, and yet that wasn't good enough um, because life isn't that simple. Even though that's not simple, um, when someone is dying, you also have this job to do. You also have these bills to pay. You also have to take your children to school. So there's going to be things that just will crash. And... Because this is a novel, I had the opportunity to um, let these things that crashed actually have a connection. Um, and if they didn't have a connection, it just it just wouldn't work. It'd work in real life, but not in a novel. 
this is a novel, and it's based on one of your short stories. Mm-hmm. And I'd like you to talk about the difference for of experience for you as a writer between writing short stories and writing a novel and what made you choose the story of the minor wars mm-hmm. to turn that into a novel? Um, well, it was one of my favorite stories that I'd written, and uh, actually it was it was other people's favorites too, which gave me pause because you don't want to ruin something um, that's not broken. But I just he had there was more of a story there, and. The Minor War story ended with um, Matt King telling Scotty, I think, that the mother was going to die, but she never died, and she wasn't she wasn't having an affair. And there were just, when I looked at it, I just thought there was just so much more opportunity um, for development. And, and when I came to the plot, about the affair, it just, I just, I just sort of had to write it because I initially I set out and expanded the minor wars and I was writing a novel, but still I hadn't thought of the affair. I just thought the end would be her end. Um, and so when I came on to that idea, um, and it just really took off for me. It was, I wrote it pretty quickly and um, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it, and I think I get more joy out of writing novels than I do short stories. Um, even though I love stories and I love reading stories out loud much more than reading novel excerpts, um, there's just this sense of pleasure when you hit your stride and you knock out a few pages and you know where it's going, and you know that it's not going to come to an end just yet. Can you tell us what you're working on now? I'm working, let's see, I'm working on two things. I'm working on another novel. It's not set in Hawaii. Um, it's actually set on a town sort of like Vail, Colorado. It's a ski resort town. And I'm working on a collection of stories <laughs> um, about parenting in San Francisco, about mothers in San Francisco. Um, funny. It's light. It's funny. <laughs> so I get the both, best of both worlds. I'm working on a novel and stories. And you seem to, to like um, locations that are places where other people go to vacation. Mm-hmm. And, and I find it's interesting to, to live in a place where other people go to on vacation. It gives you an odd perception of both your life mm-hmm. and the lives of those who come to visit there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even when I, you know, go when you go on vacation, you forget there's people who live there and their lives are going on when you leave and they have the same sort of troubles and that you do in your town. Um, I love I love place. I love specific people in places. Um, and, you know, I've always loved just writing about a specific, not not just Hawaii, but a specific group in Hawaii. And the same goes for San Francisco. I'm not writing about San Francisco. I'm writing about a specific group, parents, in San Francisco. 
We'll look forward to your wise and probably painfully funny observations. (laughs) I hope so. We've been speaking with Cowie Hart-Hemmings. Her first novel is The Descendants. Thank you for joining me, Cowie. Thanks so much. I loved it. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.